Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, January the 24th, 2023. It is currently 8.45 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it was from this studio, what, about an hour ago, hour and a half ago, we concluded a live broadcast where we were reviewing the audio of an episode of a podcast known as Theology in the Raw, I believe is what it is called, Theology in the Raw, I believe is is the, the, I think that's the actual name. Let me verify, let me verify, let me verify, because I don't want to... Uh, give the wrong name, but I'm almost positive it's called Theology and the Raw. Almost positive, yes. Yes, Theology and the Raw. Yes, I wanted to make sure that I was correct. Theology and the Raw. And we were reviewing an episode of that podcast in which they are putting forth the claim, they are putting forth the idea that in Romans chapter 7, and we'll open up that passage if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 7, Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, Paul is not referring to himself in Romans 7, 14 through 25, as someone who is lost, but he is, well, well, basically, well, to, to make it fair, this is what they're saying. In Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, Paul is putting on a mask. He's pretending to be someone who isn't saved but someone who is lost prior to their conversion, that they are in bondage to sin, that they are a sinner, and that in other parts of Romans, he, he really demonstrates what it means to be a true Christian, and a true Christian is free from sin, and a true Christian is someone who has overcome sin. Now, they didn't really define what it means to overcome sin, because that would seem to imply to me that you can be, well, without sin and you can be perfect unless they play this game that you've overcome sin, but you still sin, but you can say that you've overcome sin and that you're free from sin. Who knows how they do so? But they basically took a, an approach to Romans chapter 7 that Paul is not describing a saved man in Romans seven fourteen through 25. He is descri- describing someone who is lost. Now, the obvious problem from this, uh, there's a couple of problems that we've already identified. Number one, Paul uses clearly personal pronouns. Their argument is, yeah, he's using personal pronouns, but he's not describing himself. He's pretending to be someone else. He's, he's putting on a mask. He's, he's putting on a, a costume. He's, he's in character, right? And their support for this, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll come back and give you why they support it. So that, that, that's their, the first problem is Paul's using actual personal pronouns, but we're not supposed to understand those personal pronouns as really referring to him, but referring to someone else. The second problem with this, if Paul is p- pretending to be someone else and, and trying to pretend someone who isn't saved, well, then what happens in verse 25? where he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And verse 25, whether this is Paul speaking of himself or whether this is Paul pretending to be someone who is lost, why in verse 25 is this lost person using the language of salvation and still acknowledging, still confessing that he is serving the flesh, that, that in his flesh, he's serving the law of sin. Like, well, what, what do you do? What do you do with that? They, they, they haven't really are, uh, they haven't really offered an argument for that part of verse 25 yet, but their argument about the personal pronouns is that Paul is pretending he's putting on a mask. Those, those personal pronouns don't refer to Paul, but to the character that he is playing. Now their support for this is, well, guess what? Origin, yeah, one of the early, one of the early church leaders. Origin, he he went with this theory. Now, of course, if we went and looked at all of the teaching of Origin, I think many people would be like, "Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute." We disagree with Origin on a lot of things, right? Everyone should say Amen, right there, right? I was pausing for everyone to say Amen. 
we should all say amen. We don't all agree with or Origen had some serious problems. The second person that they pointed to was Jerome. Jerome said this. Now, we could get into a little bit of discussion about Jerome, but just watch this. They offer Origen, and then guess who else they offered up? <laughs> Erasmus. I, I literally, well, I, I was dumbfounded. They, they went with Origen and Erasmus. Even if you say Jerome was great, and Jerome was, but I guarantee if you went to some of the teachings of Jerome, you would be like, no, well, absolutely not. Ab- absolutely. But that's okay. <laughs> so we go with Origen, Jerome, and Erasmus. Now, the fact they included Erasmus, I thought was interesting, especially when it's coupled with that they, they have a problem with people who say, who seem to understand that Paul is speaking of himself and Paul is describing himself as a saved man who is struggling to do the things that he wants to do because whenever the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing. They're saying the, the that's a problem, and people who read that are people who have, in their words, a low view of humanity. Now, that seems to be kind of in a, a clue on what's going on here. They don't have a low, low, low view of humanity. They have a, I guess, a higher view of humanity. Well, if you are referring to a low view of humanity, is that we are depraved sinners whose hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, that we are conceived in sin, dead in our trespasses and sins, and even after we are saved, we still have a sinful nature. If that is what you're calling well, a low view of humanity and you are dismissing that, well, then your only other option is you are coming through to Romans chapter 7 from the perspective of Pelagianism. Or Pelagius and it, or Erasmus, which which would be very interesting. Now, if you don't know the history of Erasmus, let me let me give you a little bit of just background of Erasmus so that you understand. And I'm going to be borrowing from a famous, 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 famous article, the Pelagian Captivity of the Church, which I'm assume I don't know who hasn't read this article because. I mean, it's just one of those articles that kind of just transcends everything. But the Pelagian captivity of the church, let's just read a little bit about this, because I just can't believe they pointed to Origen, Jerome, and Erasmus as their argument that the personal pronouns <laughs> don't really refer to Paul. And that anyone who thinks Paul is describing himself as a saved man who struggles with sin, it's because we have a low view of humanity. All right. So at this point, this stops becoming about Romans chapter 7, and it becomes about some other issues. But let me read a little bit from this article. During the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther wrote a little book that was highly controversial. It was a massive critique of the Roman Catholic sacramental system entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Luther likened the oppressive regime of Rome in the 16th century with that of Israel's blight, which held captive by the rivers of Babylon. I have often wondered how Luther would assess our own age and the state of the church today. I suspect if he wrote for our time, his book would be entitled The Pelagian Captivity of the Church. I suspect this would be the case because Luther considered the most important book he ever wrote to be his classic, The Bondage of the Will. And The Bondage of the Will should be required reading of every Christian on earth. It is a very important, a very important work. Now, I'm not saying it's an easy read, but it's a very important work. This work focused on the issue of the enslaved will of man as a result of original sin. It was a response to Erasmus and his diatribe, his, his work, um, and his perspective. In the translator's introduction to this work, it is said that Luther saw Erasmus as an enemy of God and the Christian religion, an Epicurean and a serpent, and he was not afraid to say so. I think Luther would see the great threat to the church in today's, today in terms of Pelagianism because of what, what transpired after the Reformation. 
Historians have said that though Luther won the battle with Erasmus in the 16th century, he lost it in the 17th century and was demolished uh, and was demolished in the 18th century by the conquest achieved by the Pelagianism of the Enlightenment. He would see the church today as being in the grasp of Pelagianism with the adversary of the faith having a stranglehold on us. Now, Pelagianism in its pure form was first articulated by the man from whom it is named, a 4th century British monk. Pelagius engaged in a fierce debate with St. Augustine, a debate provoked by Pelagius's reaction to Augustine's prayer. And this was his prayer. We've talked about this so many times and on all of the studies I've done on Pelagianism. We've talked about this so many times. Uh, Augustine prayed this, command what thou will and grant what thou dost command. Now, obviously, nobody would have a problem with the first part. God can command whatever he wills. But Pelagians, semi-Pelagians, would have a problem with and grant what thou dost command because they would argue no man is free to obey. God does not have to grant what he commands. We can just do it on our own. Pelagius insisted that moral obligation necessarily implies moral ability. If God requires men to live perfect lives, then men must have the ability to live perfect lives. This led Pelagius to his wholesale denial of original sin. He insisted that Adam's fall affected Adam alone. There is no such thing as inherited, inherited fallen nature that afflicts humanity. He further claimed grace is not necessary for salvation, that man is able to be saved by his works apart from the assistance of grace. Grace may facilitate obedience, but it is not a necessary condition for it. Now, this article goes on. There's a lot more to it. Everyone should read it. I will post it in the Discord channel because everyone should just be familiar with, I mean, everyone should be familiar with the Pelagian controversy, not only with Pelagian, Pelagius and Augustine, but all the way has Pelagianism made its way through the church as it made its way through the centuries all the way to the canons of Dort and and, and the Synod Synod of Dort, all, all through all the issues. And it, it, I mean, Pelagius won. He, he may have lost the battle, but he won the war. Most Christians today are semi-Pelagian. That is just the reality of it. The heresy of Pelagianism won, and it makes me mad that it won. It should, it should have never won. It should have been condemned outright, and the church should have never allowed semi-Pelagianism. It should have, it should have completely rejected it outright. There should be no room for it because it's a complete and utter rejection of the truth of human depravity. And once you destroy the doctrine of human depravity, the next thing you know, you're saying, well, see, you can do this and 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 you can do this. So even though they haven't argued for Pelagianism, even though they haven't argued for semi-Pelagianism, they've implied in this podcast that we're reviewing that the problem and the reason some of us read Romans 7 is Paul describing himself as a saved man who still struggles with sin, in their mind, the reason we do that is because we have a low view of humanity, where they have a higher view of humanity. And now, according to them, once you're saved, well, guess what? You're no longer struggling with sin because you can overcome sin. And they kind of gave it away. (laughs) They made this little comment that, well, if Romans 7, if Paul couldn't overcome sin, then none of us can. And, I, and, and someone made a comment in, in the chat on the Spreaker app. Well, then I, I think they just gave it away. That's, that's the whole issue. Paul couldn't overcome sin in his per, per, personal practical life, just like we don't overcome sin in our personal practical life. That's why we have to be saved by an imputed righteousness, because clearly we were not saved by an infused righteousness. So it's just amazing <laughs> that they point to for their kind of like, well, Origen didn't think Paul was speaking of himself as a saved man. And Jerome didn't think, and Erasmus didn't think so. And you're like, Erasmus? Now you're leading right back to kind of a Pelagian view of humanity and of uh, the will is free and we can just obey perfectly whatever God demands. We can't obey what God commands. 
No one can obey what God commands. We fall short of it in some way, shape, or form. That's why we need an imputed righteousness. So they, they kind of, now they, they may completely reject Pelagianism in theory. They may even, well, I don't think they reject semi-Pelagianism because, I mean, clearly they seem to reject the, the Reformed understanding. I mean, they, they seem to clearly look down on the Reformed view because we have a low view of humanity. So they really haven't given us much uh, of anything so far. And they, again, they have not defined what they mean that we can overcome sin. Right? They, they, they've said that we're free and that we, we can overcome. Now, I believe we are free and we've overcome sin in our position, but not in our practice. Because again, if you say we've overcome and we're free, that means sinless perfection. Is, well, if we've overcome, then sinless perfection is required. And if you say we're free, we should be able to be, again, reach sinless perfection. Because if I can't reach sinless perfection, then clearly I'm not free because I'm limited. So we're going to finish. Well, I don't know if we're going to finish this. We're going to see how far we can get this evening. I know it's already 9 p.m. Central Time. So um, I know it'll get late and uh, half the audience will drop out here probably soon. But we'll, we'll, uh, I wanted to try to at least get maybe around 30 more minutes of review time in, maybe, maybe we can, we can shoot for that. And then that, then that should leave just a little bit to try to finish up tomorrow. But here we go. I know that's kind of a, well, that's not, that wasn't really a long review. We added a little bit there about Erasmus and the bondage of the will by Luther and that whole problem. But I know that most Christians don't think the semi-Pelagian captivity of the church is a problem. But ladies and gentlemen, it's a, it's a it, man. It destroys everything. So many problems with it. But okay, All right here we go. Let's see what other evidences they have for why we should read Romans chapter seven the way we we do we do so. I know there's many more other. There's so many other things we need to talk about. We'll see in the process of reviewing if I can make it back to some of those issues. If I cannot. Then maybe when this, when we're done with the review, if we need to, we'll do an episode or two of answering questions and uh, seeing what we can do to uh, help people understand some of these serious theological issues. All right, so here we go. So when now, did, uh, was it the Reformation ahead. when the Paul reading yeah. started? Yeah, let, let, me give, let me give one more because he's my favorite, uh, yeah. is John Wesley. Okay, so uh, they just they they just blamed basically it was the Reformation where we started reading Paul as basically being lost. That's that's where we're wrong. And so, but so then he interrupted. So now he's going to offer John Wesley. He's going to offer John Wesley. So we're going to have Origen, Jerome, Erasmus, and John Wesley. This is clearly going in a certain theological direction. All right, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at something. I don't know. Um, let's see here. I'm just going to look. I, I'm just looking up something. I'm not going to tell you what I'm looking up because I may not, may not be able to find it. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong here. Um. Okay, hang on. If I look up semi-Pelagianism, I'm giving you, uh, I'm giving it away a little bit here. Um, I was trying to see. Okay, um, many Arminians have disagreed with the generalization, believing it's liable to Jacobus Jacobus Arminius, um, who's where Arminianism derives. And the remonstrance who maintained uh, his Arminian view after his death, John Wesley, an Anglican defender of Arminianism and founder of Wesleyan Methodism, and other prominent classical and Wesleyan Arminians, maintain a doctrine of sin that he called total corruption and entire de uh, deprivation of the human race, which is close but not identical to the Calvinist doctrine of original sin and total depravity. For Wesley, God is constantly seeking to recover his lost sheep, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As a, uh, as a theologian, oh, as a theologian, Thomas Oden describes Wesley's view, prevenient grace 
begins to enable not just aid, as in semi-Pelagianism, one to choose further to cooperate with saving grace. So this brings in the idea of prevenient grace, which we've talked about. So even if you go with John Wesley, you're, you're still going away, you're going more towards an Arminian perspective. You're going, I'm not saying full-blown semi-Pelagianism, but the people he's looking to are people who have a theological bent away from the Reformed perspective. So can we, I, I, think, I think this is very important, and I'm willing to acknowledge this. I'm willing to acknowledge this. I say this all the time. The difficulty with biblical interpretation is we all approach passages of Scripture with a theological system in mind, whether or a theological framework, whether we understand it or not. There's a certain, we just have a certain idea about whether prevenient grace, uh, depravity, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, whatever, Augustinian view, whatever view we hold to. And so we have a tendency when we see a passage, we're like, well, wait a minute. If I interpret it that way, that's detrimental to my system. So I can't interpret it that way. Clearly, it can't mean what it seems to mean. And again, I will just go back to the classic example. I talk about it all the time. If you go to um, if, if you go to amillennialism, and I'm not here to pick on amillennialism and get into debate with people on that tonight, but just as an example, because someone who wrote papers from an amillennial perspective, because I went to amillennial schools at times, you, when you come to those passages in the Old Testament where you have these prophecies, and the prophecies seem to be directed specifically at Israel, and you're like, this is going to happen, you're going to get your land back, and, and, and God's going to be in the midst of you, and, you, and it's just like, okay, well, clearly that's never happened. So if it's never happened, either God is a liar or it has to have a future fulfillment and obviously some kind of, I don't know, millennial kingdom. But, but because you're looking at it from an amillennial position, you have to immediately go, no, 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 no. That Israel isn't Israel. Land isn't land. That's referring to the church. And that's all spiritual. We're going to have spiritual influence. We're going to have spiritual power. And so you have to interpret it in a different way. Well, if you come to Romans 7... And you come at it from a theological framework that we have, we are totally depraved, and that depravity remains even after salvation. Therefore, after salvation, we're going to see the presence of sin in our life continually. Well, then you're going to be like, well, Paul clearly is writing as a saved person who's still struggling with sin. But if you have a different view that almost frees the will, that the will can choose to do good, choose to do right, even to some level before salvation, well, clearly after salvation, now you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and grace, well, then you can overcome sin. Clearly, no Christian would be living like Paul is describing because we can all overcome sin. So they're looking for people who's clearly going to interpret it according to their theological bent. He's not making any reference. Look, he's gone from origin to John Wesley. Now you're telling me there were no theologians from origin to John Wesley who interpreted Romans 7 as that referring to Paul describing his struggles as a saved person? It would be ridiculous to say that. So you can cherry pick the people who agree with your position, okay? <laughs> but but you've, you've thrown in at a minimum two people Erasmus, complete heretic, no way to get around that. I think an enemy of God, an enemy of the church, and Origen was even condemned as a heretic, right? So, I mean, come on. I mean, <laughs> and I doubt you would agree with much of what Jerome said. Now, maybe he's a Methodist, but I, I doubt he would probably even agree with everything John Wesley said. All right, let's, let's see what other proof they offer. John oh, yeah. Wesley's going to come and say that uh, not only is this a impersonation, but Paul is impersonating a Jew or someone wanting to be like a Jew under the law. So John Wesley is the first one that actually not only considers the context, but uh, not, but also considers the immediate context that Paul begins by saying. So John Wesley was the first person to finally understand this passage in its context. Nobody else did, until John Wesley. John Wesley came around. Let's see here. Let's see, when, when did John Wesley show up? I don't have the dates for John Wesley, so I don't want to say. John Wesley shows up, let me see here. 
Uh, where's John Wesley? Where's John Wesley? Come on, where's John Wesley? There's John Wesley. John Wesley shows up. Uh, he's born in 1703 and dies in 1791. And Oh, he died on March the 2nd. He died on my birthday. All right, 1791. So John Wesley was the first. So it was, it was not till the 1700s until someone finally could interpret the passage correctly. 1,700 years. And finally, John Wesley was the first to understand that Paul was impersonating a Jew who wasn't saved, who was under the law, and John Wesley was the first to interpret the passage, understanding the context. Until then, everyone got it wrong. Isn't it amazing that the first one to get it right happens to be the one they agree with? (laughs) I love that. I love that. Hey, hey, John Wesley got it right. He got it right. He was the first one to understand it. Oh, and I just happened to agree with that guy. (laughs) Everyone else, they didn't get it right because I disagree with them. I'm speaking to those of you who know the law. And he's quoting the Mosaic law. And so John Wesley's the very first one that says, yeah, 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 right, 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 true, true, true. Um, he is doing an impersonation, but he's specifically impersonating a Jew or someone like maybe a God-fearer that is trying to live under the Mosaic law rather than the Holy Spirit. Right. And so those are kind of like the, the four OGs, if you will. Um, I, I love what uh, Wesley says. He says that it's a person who's struggling with the law, trying to overcome the uh, sin with his own power. And it's like a dog that is chained. And the dog may bark, it may bitch, it may complain, uh, it may bite at its chain, but it can't be free. And so uh, it's just uh-huh. re- quite vivid. And so Wesley's going. All right. So, hey, this is the man who's on a chain. He's a dog and he can't be free. He can't be free. But ladies and gentlemen, when you get saved and you get the Holy Spirit, dun, 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 freedom. You're no longer on the chain. Well, if I'm no longer on the chain, then I can be perfect. If I've overcome, then I am perfect. I'm waiting for at some point for them to come along and say, however, you're still going to sin. Well, if I'm still going to sin, then guess what? I haven't been set free. So either we're listening to people who are perfect, who never sin, which Man, they should have a podcast, right? Because we all need to listen to them. Or they're going to play the, the, the what I call the bait and switch game, which happens all the time in Christianity. You know, hey, you've been set free, right? There's the bait. And you're like, oh, man, I want that freedom. And you bite down on the freedom and then boom, the hook is, well, you're still going to sin. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said I was free. Well, we did, but... That's just the bait. I mean, come on. You don't think you're actually going to get the bait. We want to get you on the hook, right? I mean, like, it just seems so disingenuous. If you're going to use that illustration, then are you saying that that once you become a Christian, you're no longer on the, the chain's been cut? I want to absolutely underline that uh, this is not the the believer, but this is uh, someone trying to live under the law rather than walking according to the Spirit, which is another thing with Romans 7. There's no mention of the Holy Spirit anywhere else. And so this wretch uh, seems to be trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, to use a Southern idiom. I'm curious, did that find its, did Wesley's interpretation find its way into all Wesleyan kind of denominations? I mean, Methodist. Yeah, basically. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that the uh, post-conversion Paul, those who think that this is Paul as a believer, typical of every believer, uh, you see that more in the Reformation tradition. In the pietist tradition after Wesley, most take this as not Paul talking about himself or believers. If they're talking about a believer, it's someone who just became a believer. So please know, you, you, you have a theological split here. If you come from a more reformed perspective, which means total depravity, and even after regeneration, you still have a sinful nature. You still will sin. You will sin, 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 all the way till glorification. If that is your perspective, you read Romans 7 one way. If you read it for a more pietist way, hey, no, 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 no. You've been set free. You can do it. Basically, you can be sinless. Well, isn't it amazing 
how the theological system influences the interpretation. I will continue to argue that no matter what you do, I'm going to say this again. I don't care what you do with Romans 7, 14 through 24. I don't care how you interpret it. I don't care what games you play. I don't care what language you use. The passage still ends with this. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, clearly words salvific language, the language of salvation. So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. And guess what you do when you serve the law of sin with your flesh? You sin. You fall short. No matter what we may think, no matter what we may desire, we will still sin. The things I don't want to do, guess what I do in my body? I end up doing those things. The things things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't get done. That's, that's the argument I'm going to continue to make is that's how the chapter ends. It ends with a, it seems like an, an admission, a confession. And you say, but there's other times Paul seems to describe something different. I agree. And this is the difference between my position and my practice. And, and, and it, no matter what you argue, I can just look at everyone's life. What does the Christian life look like? Man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Why do I keep doing it? Because you're still a sinner. Reality (laughs) verifies the passage, okay? Someone on the route to becoming a believer. So someone who is uh, in the thralls of the conversion waiting for Romans 8. Okay, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, so yeah. uh So please know, I don't know if you heard that, that some would allow this to be a new believer. This is a brand new believer who's like in the process of being converted. They're in the process of 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 it. So some will try to allow for, well, it could be a Christian, but it would be like a brand new baby Christian, like only for a couple of minutes, and then boom. It's it's all it's all changed. Okay. So all right. Luther, Calvin, were they all, this is post-conversion Paul? Sure, yeah, yeah. So Augustine's going to be our first one. And oh, it's Augustine. not young Augustine, it's, it's old Augustine. Oh, wait. Okay, so now, I, like, congratulations. Gl- okay, I do respect this. I do respect this, okay? I, do, I got nothing but mad props for this because they are now going to name those who would go against it. But just as I guessed, it's going to be determined by one's theological system. Augustine first... All right. Then you're going to have Luther and then you're going to have Calvin. Right. Okay. So they're going. So now the, the reformed. So now clearly the divide here isn't Romans seven. The divide is the theological system you hold to. And now that impacts how you interpret Romans seven. That's, that's exactly what I said. Would I, 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 this is exactly what always happens. So young Augustine, he follows suit. Um, he reads Origins, like, yeah, Origins got it uh, on the money. And then uh, he starts having these debates with the Pelagians who are overemphasizing human uh, goodness um, and uh, oh. ha- uh, this idea of perfection. And so he changes his, he changes his tune because um, of this poly- polemical battle that he's having. And so he's the very first one that says it's post-conversion. And so he rings a bell that can't be unrung. But what's interesting is that he makes two qualifications. Uh, he says that when Paul says that I can't do the things that I want to do, he's not really impotent. He's not really powerless before sin. But his frustration is that he has to wrestle with sin in the first place. So it's not sin that he's falling under. It's, he's just tired of saying no to temptation. And so that's his first qualification. So if this is Paul talking about himself, it's not that he is powerless before sin, but he's just so frustrated, like, ah, I'm tired of the stinking temptation. I'm tired of even the desire. And so he even like reads a paraphrase in where Paul says, uh, uh, it's when I cut, when I say I don't covet, it's not that I covet. It's just that I'm tired of the desire uh, to covet. And so that's his first qualification. The second one is that uh, when Paul says the things I want to do, the frustration is that he doesn't doesn't do it perfectly. And he's reading the Latin and the Latin uh, even has this uh, perfection idea there. And so huh. 
He's not saying that he can't do any good. He just can't do it perfectly. And, and I obviously would agree with that. But so after August, Augustine, uh, you have. Wait, you would agree that we can't do the work, the law of God perfectly. No, no whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You would agree with Augustine that we can't do the things we want to do perfectly. But earlier, you said that we overcome sin. We can't be, we can't overcome sin if we can't obey the law perfectly. Imperfect obedience to the law is disobedience. Disobedience isn't happening in someone who's overcome sin. Disobedience is occurring in someone who hasn't overcome sin. See, I told you at some point that we're going to play this game I told you it's the it's the such a, it's ridiculous how Christians play this game. We're we overcome sin. Well, I mean, we still sin. I mean, we don't obey perfectly. We've been set free from sin. I mean, we still we can't do it perfectly. Either we have overcome or we haven't. Either we've been set free from sin or we haven't. The Bible seems to um, um, imply at times that both are true. So how do we understand the apparent contradiction? In my position, I have overcome. In my position, I'm a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. In my position, I have been totally set free. In my practice, I'm still the old me with the old nature and I'm constantly fighting and struggling with it and I'm not free and I'm not an overcomer in my practice until glorification. <laughs> I just don't understand why we so make this so complicated. Like, wh how can you not hear yourself? Earlier, you're like, overcome. We're, we're free. And now it's like, well, I mean, I would agree that we can't do it perfectly. What do you mean you would agree? If you can't do it perfectly, then what Paul is describing is true. Hey, the things I don't want to do, I do. Because, well, I can't do, I can't live out this desire perfectly to not do the things that I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I, I don't get done because I can't do them perfectly. All of the, I can't, I can't stop doing what I know I shouldn't do perfectly. And I can't do what I know I should do perfectly because I have imperfection in my very nature. I, I, I don't, why, why is, it's like Christians are like, I can't admit that we sin. I can't admit it. I can't. It's like Christians are like, oh, it's like, it, 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 it reminds me of someone who, who can't admit that they're wrong. It's like, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm, I'm wrong. Like they can't say the word wrong. They can't say, I'm sorry. They can't say I was wrong. They can't say it. Well, it's, it's like Christians. They can't, we, we, we kind of, we, we, we see, we can't admit that we sin. We sin all the time. <laughs> right? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have sinned today. I have sinned in thought. I have sinned in word. I have sinned in deed. I have sinned. If you're, if you're listening and you haven't, congratulations. You're a lot. Okay. No, no. I mean, you're, you're not telling the truth because you have sinned. I will sin tonight. I will send it three in the morning. Who knows? I'll be sinning all night. And you can be like, <gasps> I can't listen to this podcast. That guy's a sinner. Right, you should listen because you're, you're you feel like you you should be able to relate, right? Have um, uh, Aquinas, who's going to say actually both options are pretty good, uh, but I, I go with old Augustine uh, rather than young Augustine. So he takes a post-conversion view, but doesn't really expound on it um, more than than that. Okay. Um, after Aquinas, uh, then you're going to have. Uh, Luther, that's going to be the big dog. And of course, with Luther, he's going to say that, no, Paul is utterly sinful. He brings in the, yeah, we're both saints and sinners. And it's almost like uh, a, yeah. if you were to have our characters today, uh, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde um, uh, type idea, or uh, for the Spider-Man fans that listen to it, uh, you know, uh, an Osborne and Green Goblin. 
or, or a, a, a Smeagol um, and Gollum yeah. type characters that he sees with human uh, nature. And uh, 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 Luther is going to have this idea that, yeah, there, there's nothing good inside of us. But what's interesting with Augustine and Luther, Luther also is commenting on this in response to these guys who read way too many books and uh, that, that like Aristotle uh, that that he's using that are emphasizing this perfectionism as well. But Luther has this quote that I grew up hearing, and it may be legend, I'm not sure, but he said that, um, you know, before I understood the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whenever sin would knock on the door, I would answer it. But mm-hmm. now that I understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whenever sin knocks on the door, I'll let Christ get the door. And when <laughs> sin sees the nail prints, uh, then it obviously recedes. And so uh, you, you do have Luther at times when he's in this polemical that this is totally Paul, y'all. Um, Paul talking about himself because we're rats. We're just in misery. There's nothing good inside of us. But then you have these comments like, um, yeah, we do have a power to let Christ get the door. Mm. And so there's some inconsistency there. Uh, and I, I do agree. There's inconsistency in all of it. You've been inconsistent. You can't see your own inconsistency. Well, we can't do it perfectly, but we're, we overcome sin. Either... <laughs> No, look, everyone struggles with this. I completely agree because the Bible, when it comes to this subject, is maddening at times. You're like, wait a minute. So am I am I justified by grace alone through faith alone? Or am I not justified by grace through faith alone? Paul seems to say one thing. James seems to say another. Wait a minute. Am I been set free from sin? But if I set free from sin, why do I keep sinning? Well, wait, how... If if a if a Christian is someone who's basically stopped sinning, then why does Paul refer to the people in Corinth as babes in Christ when he says that they're carnal? So can I be carnal and still be saved? Well, no, you can't be carnal and still be saved. These struggles have happened throughout the entire history of the church. To me, I, I'll say it again, the only way of even, I think, and I'm not even saying it's perfect, is understanding the two realities, the positional and the practical they're both real. I'm a saint and I'm a sinner. They call that like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They, they, they're almost kind of mocking it. No, it's, it's the only way to understand it because in some ways we are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think, I think there's that maybe you could say that in my position, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm perfect. I'm holy. But in my practice, oh no, and now I'm evil. And now I, I sin all the time. I sin in thought, word, and deed. But that's just the reality of the Christian life. That and they still have not even brought this into this. But the this is why we have this is why we confess. This is why we believe that we were saved by and imputed, not infused righteousness. If, if I believe we're saved by an imputed righteousness, why do I believe I was saved by an imputed righteousness? Because I can't do anything pre-conversion or post-conversion to save me because my works are corrupted and I'm a sinner no matter pr- before conversion or after conversion. That's why my only hope is... Dun, 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 the imputed righteousness. So if that quote from Luther is supposedly true, it listen, this is what happens. When sin knocks on my door, yes, I will let the imputed righteousness of Christ <laughs> answer the door because the imputed righteousness of Christ will say, this person in here is holy and righteous and have been forgiven and his blood and his, and my blood completely covers him and he is forgiven. Even if I'm sinning. I'm still covered in the imputed righteousness. But uh, again, I think it's interesting that uh, it's a polemical battle that Luther has where he's going to really under, un, underscore. Uh, and so he's bringing kind of his supposition, presuppositions of though we are nothing but worms into it. I like what William Winston Churchill said, all men are worms, but I'm a glow worm. <laughs> <laughs> did, did did Luther or or the reformers, I guess, have exe- like strong exegetical reasons? Like did they wrestle with Romans seven against the backdrop of Romans eight, or I guess against the foredrop or whatever, um, and the language and everything? Or was it just kind of like, yeah, this is it was more like a theological uh, reading of it? If you knew. more the more the latter, yeah. Um, and again, not to take any anything away from even Augustine. There's a legend about him about how after he uh, had become a believer. He was uh, walking through one of his old haunts, and he runs into a, a paramour who he used to Netflix and chill with all the time. And she sees him walking down the road, and full of delight of what the night would surely hold, 
she begins to cry out to him, Augustine, it is I, it is I, it is I. And he turned and now conformed and transformed into the image of Christ, looks at her and says, I, but it is no longer I. And so it's interesting that uh-huh. uh, when it comes to practicality in their life and at least a legend that they do seem. You're going to use a legend to prove a point. Now you yourself, see, now he's trying to say, see, now that we've been transformed, now, now we've been set free from sin. Well, wait a minute. You've already said that we don't do it perfectly, but you're going to use a legend. Come on, man. Come on. Why use the legend of Augustine? How about we use that same example a million times in the life of believers? That here's a believer, he, this girl he used to sleep with. They had this amazing physical relationship. It was the greatest thing that they have ever known. And he's been saved four years, five years, six years. And all of a sudden, he's somewhere on a Friday night alone by himself, no one around. And she's like, hey, and she's like, let's get together tonight. You're telling me <laughs> that now no Christian would ever fall into that sin ever? Give me a break. Okay. Give me a break. Many, a lot of Christians would be saying it is I, the same person you knew. I don't even worry about anything else. I know I'm not supposed to say that because now we've all been set free and we're now all sanctified and we now no longer have any sinful urges. Okay. Well, congratulations if you've accomplished that, but I think most would acknowledge that we sin and thought word. And guess what? Guess what? Okay, come here. Everybody get close to the microphone. Okay, come on, get close, get close. Okay. Let me tell you something. Are you ready? Here's a dirty little secret about Christianity. Even if you tell the girl, hey, 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 it's no longer I. I have died. It's now Christ that liveth. And you sound so holy and you sound so righteousness and you walk away from her. If 30 minutes later, Three hours later, maybe you're in a room by yourself and all of a sudden your mind starts remembering every time you'd been with her and starts contemplating and thinking of what it would be like to be with her tonight. You clearly demonstrate that the old you is very present and according to biblical standards, if you start lusting, you're guilty of the physical act. So even if you're able to sound so good, doesn't mean even if Augustine did that, even if it's real, you don't know what his mind was thinking. You don't know what he thought about that night. So guess what? He could still have sinned. (laughs) So do you reduce now like overcoming sin to just the external act? Or I, 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 you know, I I guess I, I, maybe no longer, hey, hey, if it's just the physical act, As long as I avoid physically touching someone, but I can lust all day, then, then, then are we changing the rules? To think that the believer has power to say no to sin. And so, yeah, so it's interesting. The believer has the power to say no to sin. If we have the power to say no to sin, then we have the power to say no to all sin. If we have the power to say no to all sin, sinless perfection is not only expected, It's assumed. But he's already acknowledged that we don't do it perfectly. So we can say no, but we don't say no perfectly. Why do we not say no perfectly? What's the reason we can't say no perfectly? What is the reason? Someone tell me what the reason is that we can't say no perfectly. I don't know what it could. Could it be that we still have a sinful nature? (gasps) I'm shocked. But those things side by side. But um, mm. so Luther's going to be the one that uh, Luther and Calvin are going to be the ones who uh, really resonate with our popular view that we are powerless to sin. And, and August, I mean, uh, Calvin's going to come and say that our life is misery. The closer we get to God, uh, the more we realize that uh, we're nothing but. Amen to Calvin. The closer we get to God, the more wretched we realize we are. There's never been a more provable statement in the history of theology. 
The closer you get to God, the clo- every step closer to God, you become more and more aware of holiness. The more you are aware of holiness, the more wretched you realize you are. Spiritual growth is the daily step towards an understanding of how ungodly you are. The more, the more you grow spiritually, the more you realize how far away you are from God's holiness. And the more wretched you feel, the more sweet the imputed righteousness is. Spiritual growth. Look, an immature believer, you, you start getting that like arrogant, I'm better than everyone else. You become condemning. You become arrogant. You become prideful. You become judgmental. The more mature you become in your faith, you become more humble, more broken, and more realized, man, I am an absolute mess. What is wrong with me? I am, I am wretched. I am, I am ungodly. I deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And you begin to realize how sweet the gospel is. You don't understand how sweet the gospel is until you grow as a Christian. The more you grow as a Christian, you just realize what is wrong with me. I've been a Christian for this many years and I still have this thought or this thought or this thought or, and I desire this and I desire that and I desire this. And even if I win over one thing, there's 70 other things I'm guilty of. Calvin is right. (laughs) Reality proves it. Oh man, alive. I'm starting to get irritated. I'm, I'm grateful that they are bringing, now they're very, being very dismissive of Luther and Augustine. They're being de- very dismissive. They weren't even near as dismissive. They, do you see how they weren't very demiss- dismissive of Origen, of uh, Jerome, or of uh, Erasmus, or, or John Wesley. They're just act like, and, and please note, they claim that the, the people on the reform side didn't look at this exegetically. We brought our theology to it. But the people on the non-reform side, of course, they're the exegetical geniuses, right? I mean, I mean, if you're going to put exegetical skill, who, who are you going to, I mean, are you going to go with Erasmus? Are you going to go with John Wesley? You're going to go with Calvin. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Calvin's not known for his exegetical mind. No, he's, he's known. It, come on. I would say that our life is misery. The closer we get to God, uh, the more we realize that uh, we're nothing but worms and uh, almost a self-condemnation. They, mm-hmm. And so I don't know what they do with like what we see in Galatians, that the fruit of the joy is, fruit of the spirit is joy and self-control. But uh, yeah. yeah, so Cal- Calvin is going, Calvin and Luther have really uh, informed most of our traditions today, but of the New Testament. And it is self-condemnation. In myself, I am condemned. The law condemns. The gospel saves. <laughs> they, they are teaching a salvation that gives you the ability to be holy. And we, and the reform side, we teach a salvation that declares us to be holy because we can't be holy. And it's because we're saved by an imputed righteousness. Testament scholars that are writing on Romans 7, it's mostly Baptists that um, are still holding on to the post-conversion view. So Thomas Schreiner, who you had on your podcast, um, mm-hmm. he, he kind of holds on to that. Drawing on Will Timmons, who has a Baptist background. I mean, and David Garland at Baylor has a new Romans commentary. But as far as I know, these are, and all three of those have Baptist um, yeah. in their background. But um, outside of that. Us bad Baptists. Bad on us. Bad on us. Bad on us. Because we think that someone's saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Describes a Christian. I mean, how stupid of us as Baptists to think that. Come on. We got to know that we do all the things we want to do. We do. And the things we don't want to do, we stop doing. It's true of every church. And yeah, so it's pretty closely established that Paul's not talking about a post-conversion experience where a believer is powerless before well, sin. It, it, so that's you're talking about New Testament scholarship. Like you get the yeah, scholarly yeah, level yeah. and it's a far minority view that a, a New Testament scholar with a PhD would 
read Romans 7 as a pre-conversion Paul. But why is it so popular in the pulpits? Most preachers, right? Would you say I'm an evangelical? Let's just say yeah. non-Wesleyan evangelicalism. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. about charismatic circles. I don't know how they read the passage. Um, but most of the time when I hear someone reference, I don't, I don't even critique them anymore because I'm like, well, of course right. you're going to say it's post or pre-conversion. Wait, yeah. post-conversion Paul. That's just in the air. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. is that? I mean, are they not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I theory? listened to your podcast the other day and you had J.D. Greer on. And this is not to take away from J.D. at, at all. Yeah, he he, he when, when, mentioned it in passing. Yeah, when you asked him why these uh, yeah. mature pastors are sexually exploiting uh, their members, he pointed to Romans 7. Mm-hmm. Like Paul says, um, our flesh is weak and there's nothing good in us. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think if the things that you don't want to do um, is that you're finding yourself doing is sexual exploitation. It sounds more like Romans 2 um, and the hypocrite than it does Romans 7. And I think Paul would say to that person, if you're a pastor and you're struggling with sexually exploiting someone, then you need to step down immediately. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're a church leader, you need to step down right. immediately and get counseling uh, for that. That's not Romans 7. But even have- Wait, so the solution is counseling? Okay, now I'm confused. If you get saved, you're now set free and you overcome and you think you're saved, but you're struggling with some desire for sexual exploitation or, or some kind of inappropriate sex. You need counseling. Why would you need counseling? You should tell them, get saved and you'll be set free. Get saved. If you're a pedophile and you're struggling, get saved. You'll be set free. If you're a homosexual, get saved. You'll be set free. If you're a heterosexual teenager struggling with sexual lust, get saved. You'll be set free. If you're a a, a woman who struggles with submission, get saved and you'll be the most submissive woman on the face of the world on the planet. If you're a person who has anger or you talk back and you're rebellious, get saved and... why would you point to counseling? Your theology says get saved and you're set free. You're no longer under sin. You're an overcomer. Sin would uh, salvation would be the solution. So why would you just tell those church leaders to get out of the pulpit and get counseling? You should tell those people in the pulpit to get saved and then they'll never have another problem again. I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. I have this thing. It, it's this, this idea. I had a church member who left his wife and children for another church member. And I confronted him and just w- was begging him to reconsider. Uh, and he looked at me and says, well, it's like Paul. The things I want to do, I, I can't do. And so mm-hmm. it comes to the point where people use it to excuse their sins. The heart wants what the heart wants. Uh, uh, or Elsa doesn't care. I think that's uh, Emily Dickinson, uh, or it's almost even a pie pie type idea. I am what I am, and that's what I am. And so they just kind of appeal to this. Oh, no. Are you saying someone could possibly abuse a biblical truth? So I, this is this, this is such a standard argument. This is the same. Oh, my goodness gracious. All right. This is the go-to. This, this, this sounds like I'm listening to a high school debate. This is what it sounds like. Here's the go. I'll just give you an example. This is how it plays out in theology. It's so childish. It's so high school. All right. This is what it works. Oh, look, you believe in eternal security. So now someone's going to be, well, I'm eternally secure so that I can do whatever I want. Abuse of a truth does not negate the truth. But just because something is true and someone abuses that truth or uses that truth to their own advantage doesn't make it not true. <laughs> That's oh, what kind of like what kind of logical. Well, look at this. Here's a here's an example of someone who was using the doctrine in an abusive way in a wrong way. See, the doctrine must not be true. That is that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It, oh. Adamic nature that well we're just all in Adam we can't do good and we we forget that Paul says that Adam's part of the old that's dead and gone and it's passing away and now we put on Christ instead. But yeah, it just it it, it resonates so well and uh, the one of the, I'm working. 
It resonates so well because everyone who's ever been a Christian knows it resonates well because it's reality. <laughs> okay, that's why it resonates so well. I wonder why why is the church is constantly filled with sin and scandal? And it doesn't matter which church you're, every pastor who's ever been a pastor knows that in their church, there's this happens and this person's in this sin and this happens and this happens. Every, every pastor has these stories. I don't care if you're a pastor in the middle of nowhere, Texas, You've got the, I got stories of how people did this or someone did this or myself, I did this or I did, we've all got everyone. To, why is it no matter where the church is, big, small, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of somewhere, sin. I don't care if it's a biblical church, the church of Corinth. I don't care where it is. There's sin. There's sin. Why is sin the normal operating procedures for Christians from Zimbabwe to any other area in the world, just go, just, it doesn't matter where from the North pole to the South pole. On a book right now. And the, the, the book series is to take what is commonplace in scholarship and try to bring it to the busy pastor and student to let them know that if you are in Romans seven, you don't have to stay there. Um, Romans eight is right next door. Let's speak of Romans eight. Let's let's. Okay. We're going to stop right there. Wow, twenty four. Let's see. Let me get, go back here to this. Where, where, where's my notes? All right. We're at twenty four minutes and twenty eight seconds. Twenty four, twenty eight. If this is their best argumentation, they've not given us anything. They've not given us anything at all. All right. I'm gonna check. Nobody. Uh, Someone said earlier, uh, very, very, very curious about what more evidence they have. Well, so far, they haven't given us anything. Um, okay. All right. Making sure I'm not missing anything. I think everything's good to go. I'm going to check email inbox. Make sure I haven't missed anything. I, I don't really know what else to say here. Um, no, 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 no. Okay. Check in all the emails. Uh, someone just asked, do they not sin? Or they say no sometimes. How else would they say this so confidently? I know, I agree. Well, I think they play the same game everyone else plays. We're free from sin. We overcome, but we still we're not perfect. And, and it it makes it's it literally makes no sense. It, 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 I don't know. I don't know how you do that. Either you have to redefine what sin is. You have to redefine what overcome is. You have to redefine what saying no to sin is. I don't know, but I know they sin because the standard of God is, let me just tell you, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Okay. Love your, love your, <laughs> love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Nobody does that. That's a sin. Be ye holy as God is holy. Nobody does that. That's a sin. As a Christian in my mind, I want to love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, but I don't do it. I want to be holy as God. So in my mind, as a believer, right, repented, I've changed my mind, right? I think differently. I, I know that what God says is true, and I know sin is wrong, but in my body, I continue to serve the law of sin, but in Christ, there is no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation in Christ? Romans 8, because of imputed righteousness. It's just, it's maddening. It, oh, it's so, so, so maddening. But clearly, this comes down to, well, again, why I hate semi-Pelagianism. Why I hate Pelagianism. The divide is between a Pelagian, semi-Pelagian view, and a free will, Arminian kind of view and a reform view about total depravity. What ticks me off is though in the reform camp who almost forgets the existence of total depravity after salvation and looks for the actions of people to prove whether they're saved and for, and forget the fact that no, we're still depraved. We're still going to sin. So we can't look to our actions. We have to look to imputed righteousness. The, the reform camp can irritate me as well because we almost abandon total depravity and end up in some kind of lordship kind of view, which seems to imply that we can now just overcome sin. No, we still have a depraved nature. We're still going to sin. That's why we're saved by an imputed righteousness. Maddening. Madness. Madness, I say. All right. 
It is 9.49 p.m. Central Time. For some of you, uh, for other people, it's around 10.49 p.m. Eastern Time, whatever time zone it is. I don't know. The only time zone that matters is the time zone Texas is in, right? All every, The whole country should be in the same time zone as Texas because Texas should make the rules for everyone else, right? That's the way. That That's scripture somewhere. All right. I'm joking. I wish I, I I don't have anything profound to say. I have no I don't know what else to say. I, that was just that was just that was just whatever that was. All right, email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. News, the letter I, the letter F. A lot of times people say I don't I don't enunciate it correctly. Newsif at yahoo.com. We'll be back tomorrow with more live broadcast. I feel like I want to, I used to, uh, when I worked at the hospital, Erling Berquist Regional Hospital, and I worked what was called NCOD, at the the end of every night, I would, uh, I always had to make the overhead announcement that this concludes another business day at Erling Berquist uh, Regional Hospital. Visiting hours have now come to an end. Please make your way to the nearest exit. Uh, visiting hours will resume tomorrow morning at nine. And I always had to get, and so I always changed it up. I feel like now I need to say, this concludes another day of broadcasting of the Theology Central podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Make sure you tune in. All right, everyone have a great night. God bless.